For some reason, our culture seems to be fascinated by a good murder mystery. I think we all believe that murder is a horrible thing, but we love a story about good guys solving a murder case using smarts, logic, careful observation, and maybe a little luck. Then we can celebrate when they finally crack the case. In Cold Blood, Truman Capote's book on the 1959 murder of a family in Kansas played a large role in the growth of the true crime genre. The podcast serial kicked off the most recent true crime renaissance, paving the way for many other true crime podcasts as well as series and documentaries like Netflix's Making a Murderer and HBO's The Jinx. And who can discount the influence of the show Law & Order has had, fueling our appetite for stories ripped from the headlines? What about plants? Can they be murdered? Well, there are certainly cases where people murder plants in a way that is bad, like deforestation. But plants are most often murdered by other organisms from nature that we call pests. I was originally trained as a plant pathologist, and we were the folks who studied the diseases of plants. My graduate work was with diseases of grapes, hence my Twitter handle, at GrapeTalk. Well, plants, including grapes, can sometimes mysteriously die. On today's episode, I want to talk about an alarming disease of grapes that arose in the 19th century. It took a long time for scientists to track down the culprit. For decades, the murderer couldn't be identified, and what was happening in American vineyards really was a case of serial killings whose trail ran cold. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to meet another plant pathologist who was one of the key detectives who finally cracked the case of the mysterious deaths of grapes. He was a player in a great story that I'm happy to be able to share with you today. When Europeans began to colonize North America 400 or so years ago, they brought along the crops they knew how to grow so they could have food, things like wheat and barley and apples and grapes. And over time, they also adopted several kinds of plants that were unknown in the old world, like potatoes, tomatoes, corn, and blueberries, which were also taken back to Europe. Back to the settlers' familiar crops, some did well in the New World, but others didn't. Wheat did great in the northern colonies, but poorly in the south because of a fungal rust disease favored by the wetter, warmer weather there. The winters in the north were too cold for one of the Europeans' favorite crops, grapes. And when the settlers tried to grow grapes in the south, they'd grow for a while and then mysteriously die after a few years. Now, it was the Spanish who brought the first grapes to the New World, and the friars that set up the series of missions that would become California needed grapes to make wine for communion. The grapes thrived there because of the Mediterranean type of climate, which was very much like that of Spain or Italy or parts of France. For a long time, the grapes did well, but then, in the late 1800s, they began to mysteriously die, particularly in the Anaheim area. Of course, that is the city today and the home of Disneyland, but it started out as a farming community. There's a newspaper article about these mysterious vine deaths that you can see online from the San Francisco Call issue of 1894 in December, and it was about what had come to be called Anaheim disease. It describes how, over a period of 10 years, the strange malady had ravaged over 20,000 acres of grapes, and nothing the growers did seemed to help. 
Anaheim has also been the scene of some human disease incidents, like the 2017 outbreak of Legionnaires' disease that was linked to those who visited Disneyland. But the 1894 article was quoting a talk given by the head of the State Viticultural Commission, an E.C. Bahowski, in which he was celebrating the fact that the disease seemed to be abating, although nobody knew why. But the case of vine deaths remained unsolved, and there were other outbreaks that killed vines in the 1930s and 1940s. This eventually drove the grape industry out of Southern California and to other parts of the state. Now, back in 1892, California's first professional plant pathologist, Newton B. Pierce, tried to unravel the mystery of this disease. He suspected that it was caused by a bacterium, but he wasn't able to culture any, and that's the step that you need for proof of what causes a disease in a protocol called Koch's postulates. So that's how you prove something in the courtroom of science to do with disease. Others ended up naming the malady Pierce's disease. That's not a great outcome. I hope they never named some deadly plant disease after me. The next detective on the case was Bill Hewitt at the University of California in Davis. He showed that the disease could be transmitted from one vine to another by grafting, and that in nature the disease was spread by little sap-sucking bugs called blue-green sharpshooters. This fit the MO of a virus, and that would explain why you couldn't culture it. Suspect number two, a virus. Then a competing set of detectives in Florida showed that the disease could be suppressed a bit with the antibiotic tetracycline. That made them suspect it was a mycoplasma, effectively the third suspect in this case. One of those researchers at the University of Florida was Don Hopkins, and he is the actor from this story that I recently met. In Florida, the Florida group's suspicion about a mycoplasma was shared by a grape virus expert at Davis named Austin Goheen because he showed that heat could also suppress the disease. Now, the classic meme for a detective show is someone with a magnifying glass. That would be enough enlargement power for someone working on a human homicide case, but the detectives in the plant murder investigation needed to be able to visualize much smaller bits of evidence. Fortunately, there was a powerful new investigative tool that was becoming more available called the electron microscope. The earliest work on that was in the 1930s, and it sort of got a little more practical by some work in the University of Toronto in 1938. And so with this tool, scientists were able to see far smaller things than had ever been possible, even with the best light microscopes. A researcher at Davis in the 1960s and early 70s named S.K. Lowe assisted Goheen and another scientist named George Nyland, and using her skill with the department's new electron microscope. And with it, they peered inside of the grapevine to see if they could catch the perpetrator of Pierce's disease in the act. Inside the plant's xylem cells, essentially its water plumbing system, they saw strange elongated blobs, which they decided to call rickettsia-like organisms. It's the fourth suspect in the case. They also described it as a fastidious bacterium because it was apparently too picky to let people grow it on normal culture media. Goheen, Nyland, and Lowe got a paper describing this new finding accepted for publication in a journal called Phytopathology on October 3rd of 1972, but it didn't actually publish until March of 1973. Simultaneously, that Florida team with Hopkins and Mollenhauer published similar findings and they were in the January 1973 issue of the prestigious journal Science. And 
They also had concluded that we were looking at a rickettsia-like organism because what they saw through an electron microscope. For both investigations, those electron microscope images were the smoking gun. Even though these two sets of detectives on opposite sides of the country fingered the same culprit, there was actually somewhat of a rivalry. In a sense, the Florida team won because their verdict came out in print two months earlier. Remember, this was long before the internet. By the time I got to that UC Davis plant pathology department in the spring of 1977, George Nyland had retired and my new major professor was the replacement for Bill Hewitt. Austin Goheen was still there, so I got to know him, but he would retire within two years. Now, since I was in the grape lab, I certainly heard the UC Davis version of the tale of hunting down the culprit of Pierce's disease, and they were still just calling it a rickettsia-like bacterium. Then, in 1978, another team of scientists, detectives, at a very different campus of the University of California in Berkeley, finally caught the culprit red-handed by coming up with a recipe for a medium which would finally coax this prickly perpetrator to grow in their petri plates. These new players were Mike Davis, Alex Purcell, and Sherm Thompson, also people I knew. They found the same organism also caused almond leaf scorch disease. So the suspect was now sort of under arrest, but we still didn't know exactly what to call it. And it wasn't until 1987 when yet another team of six detectives used the rapidly advancing tools of biotechnology and DNA-RNA sequencing to fingerprint the great murdering bacteria. And they declared it to be a brand new genus, which they gave the clever name Xylella fastidiosa. Xylella for the xylem of the plant in which it lives, and fastidiosa in acknowledgement of how challenging it had been to learn to grow it outside of its unfortunate victims. This diverse team of scientists came from labs at the USDA, Rutgers, the Weyerhaeuser Company, the University of Illinois, and the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC. Add that to the three other institutions in this story, and you get a sense for how hard it was to fully understand this disease that had been killing grapes since those early days in Anaheim, or even the earlier attempts to grow grapes in the American Southeast, which turns out to be where the bad guys come from in the first place. In the text version of this episode on popagriculture.com, you can also see a map of where this bad bacterium can now be found around the world, mostly in the Americas, but a bit in Europe and Asia. Now, it turns out that xylella isn't just guilty of killing grapes. It can cause problems for oaks, citrus, and the ornamental oleander, which is widely used for planting in the median strips of California highways. Just recently, a new and unique strain of xylella showed up in Italy, where it murdered trees in venerable old olive groves. I've provided a link to a National Geographic article about this. It's so sad to think about some of those ancient trees going down. And it's a threat to the olives in Spain and Greece as well. But just knowing the true cause of Pierce's disease didn't make the problem go away. You can't exactly go out and uh, arrest bacteria that live, as it turns out, in all sorts of plants, cultivated and wild. What the grape industry has learned was that the bug that spreads this malady, that blue-green sharpshooter, really only likes to live and feed in the plants that tend to grow along rivers, what, what we call riparian habitats. The sharpshooters will venture out into the vineyards from time to time, so the typical pattern is you see dying vines in the parts of the vineyard closest to the Napa River in Napa or the Russian River in Sonoma. There's an aerial photo I recently took while flying into Sonoma, and you can see it in the text version on the website. You see that there are a lot more missing or killed vines on the side of the vineyard along the river. 
Now, no one would consider taking out that natural vegetation at the riparian zone, although there can be state funds to selectively take out certain invasive plants, which are actually even worse than the native ones in terms of being a hiding place for the bacterium and its vector. Grape growers in these regions mostly just deal with a certain degree of vine death because these are regions with a great reputation for wine quality and, and that land is really valuable. But there is a twist in our murder mystery. In 1997, there was a dramatic die-off of grapevines in a relatively new wine grape growing region called the Temecula Valley. This is in Southern California, but further inland than that original problem zone in Anaheim. Temecula Valley had not had any problems with Pierce's disease, but it's pretty much desert and doesn't really have those riparian zones that the blue-green sharpshooter likes to live in. But a few years earlier, probably because of some eggs on nursery stock imported to California from the southeastern U.S., a new invasive insect had arrived, which is called the glassy-winged sharpshooter. Now our identified murderous xylella had an accomplice that isn't at all picky about what plants it feeds on. It's happy on citrus, and there was a lot of that temecula intermixed with the vineyards. Some of the wineries lost 80 to 90% of their vines in the first few years of this attack, and it seemed like the end of grapes, not just in Temecula, but potentially throughout the state if this new insect would spread. Well, the grape industry and its supporting government agencies quickly mobilized to fight this dangerous new duo. They found an insecticide that could be given to the roots of the citrus and grapes through the drip irrigation system. It would then move up and protect the plant from the sharpshooters. That put the brakes on the epidemic, and the vineyards of Temecula have since been successfully replanted and protected. I visited grape growers in that area in July, and they have almost no dead vines and a thriving tourist industry for wine tasting. The state also put in place very rigorous inspections and quarantines of all nursery stock moving north to prevent the sort of hitchhiking that got the glassy wing here in the first place. And grape growers all around the state chip in for a state-run monitoring and targeted insecticide program that has, thus far, been able to prevent that new accomplice from moving to the rest of the state. It's working, but no one in the industry is complacent. The search is on for additional tools to fight both the insect and the bacterium. It would take another whole podcast just to go through the list of, of research efforts, but briefly they involve ideas like conventional breeding, biotech traits, live biocontrol agents, insect predators, parasites, various natural products, and a new sprayable chemical bactericide. I'm tracking these now, and I'm even participating in the research effort as part of my day job as a technology consultant. I can't think of anything I'd find more satisfying than to see the grape industry find a robust set of strategies to shut down that murderous bacterium once and for all. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.